Blog Talk Radio. Happy Wednesday, everyone, and happy HD Awareness Month. All the whole month of May as HD Awareness and JHD Awareness for our families and community. Welcome to Help for HD Live. This is Melissa Billiardi, your host, and tonight our call-in numbers are 310-982-4227, or you may also call our toll-free number, 877-497-4103. When you call in, press 1. We'll cue you into the show. And uh, a huge thank you to Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation for sponsoring Help for HD Radio with very generous educational grants. Tonight, we have the ultimate incredible special guest, Dr. Nancy Wexler, with us. It, it gives me so much joy and pleasure to bring you this long-awaited interview with the most esteemed and most cherished member of the HD scientific community, Dr. Nancy S. Wexler. Uh, she is the president of the Hereditary Disease Foundation and uh, a foundation which was founded by her father, Dr. Milton Wexler, in 1968. And she's focused on finding cures for not only Huntington's disease, but other neurologic diseases. Um, she's also a, a lovingly called blonde, the blonde angel by her Venezuela subjects, which I absolutely adore. Nancy was born in Washington, D.C., but spent her first five years in Topeka, Kansas, and then the family moved to L.A., California. In 1983, she moved to New York and then back to D.C. for a 10-year commission with NIH. She is an esteemed geneticist and Higgins Professor of Neurology at Columbia University, best known for her discovery of the location of the gene and ultimately discovering the gene on the tip of chromosome 4, which causes Huntington's disease. She has received many prestigious awards and honorary doctorates in her career. And although she has an AB and PhD in clinical psychology um, and worked as a clinical psychologist, uh, she chose to work in genetics, and we are so grateful for that. Her scientific contributions to HD science have led the way for many of our current HD researchers. I can't wait to hear all about what she's working on now through the Hereditary Disease Foundation. Uh, Dr. Wexler, welcome to your show. How are you today? Well, after that glorious and very generous <laughs> warm welcome, I'm completely and totally in bliss. Uh, how else could I be? <laughs> that fantastic, generous lovely welcome. I wish I could just jump over there and give you all hugs and kisses. <laughs> and that's what I love about you. Every picture I see you in, you're hugging someone. <laughs> I love it. I think your sister just came on the show, too. Alice, are you with Great. us? Yes, I am. Hey, fantastic. Hi, Hi Alice. Yay. Hi. <laughs> Alice is here, too. Um, so uh, first, let's talk about growing up with your mom and dad and your sister and kind of segue into uh, finding out about your mom uh, having HD and the fact that you're at risk and and how did that all present itself when you were young or when you were a teenager? Well, I I think that when we were growing up, um, our mom really um, gave us sort of a joy for, you know, looking at nature. Um, She would always... Uh, look at you know what the ducks crossing. We had duck ponds. We had mulberry bushes. We had dogs, plants, and and our mom always used to sort of uh, teach us uh, the science behind botany, flowers. Uh, I I think in a way 
um, we kind of took for granted her knowledge. We thought, oh, well, all moms do that. <laughs> you know, no. when, we, when we grew up, we realized that, in fact, our mom was sort of trying to save all of our lives by studying science because mm-hmm. um, it, it turned out that her own uh, father died in a psychiatric hospital in upstate New York in 1929 with an accurate diagnosis of Huntington's disease. Much to our amazement, we found that out. So even in 1929, he was accurately diagnosed with Huntington's. But uh, my, my mom overheard the doctor, you know, say it was Huntington. She went to the library and looked it up uh, and said hereditary disease is affecting only men. So mm-hmm. my mom uh, was the youngest sis- uh, sister of her three totally adored, um, she had three older brothers who had jazz bands. And my mother was the only one who went to school. She's the only one who then went to Hunter College uh, and loved biology. She went to Woods Hole. And then she even, you know, went to the Columbia University in the Morgan Fly Room, the very super famous Morgan Fly Room, and she did a thesis, <laughs> yep. a master's thesis on fruit flies. And, yeah. you know, which is, you know, for a mother, for a mom and a woman, you know, from 1934 to 1936, yeah. she was here at Columbia. A pioneer. Masters. A pioneer. But now we discover she was really doing it to save her, her brothers. Mm-hmm. So she thought, well, if she was a scientist, she could save them. And yeah. I think that a lot of her um, her her, uh, her own motivations were really from being at risk and wanting to actually save them. Mm-hmm. And then I think for my dad, he always, as a clinical psychologist, was extremely interested in schizophrenia and the science behind brain diseases. He was also passionate about fruit flies. You know, fruit flies are going to find the cure for Huntington's, even until his dying day. He said, you know, if they check out gene silencing in fruit flies, you know, that's going to be the cure for Huntington's. So he said that when he died, like in 19, you know, 2007, at the age of like almost 100, and she wow. was working on fruit flies. So when she, well, you know, when she got diagnosed in 1953, I mean, she got diagnosed in 1968 at the age of 53 and died 10 years later. And But I think yeah. all of you know, my both parents were really um, passionate about science, passionate about research, and passionate about, you know, creating the Hereditary Disease Foundation to make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. I think for my, I think we had hoped that since all of my mother's older brothers were diagnosed on the same day, in 1955, uh, with varying stages of Huntington's, and she uh, lived past that age when mm-hmm. they were diagnosed. So I think we all hoped for the best that she would be spared. But then in 1968, when she was 58, she was crossing the street on her way to jury duty uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning, and some policeman just screamed at her, 
top of his lungs. Now, aren't you ashamed of yourself for being drunk so early in the morning? So that Mm -hmm. night she got diagnosed. And the next morning they started the Hereditary Disease Foundation because they said, you know, only through science are we going to try to find a cure. You know, we've got to change our right. future. Right. And it, and it kind of starts with the fruit flies, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, other than your mom, of course, your mother uh, being probably your biggest um, inspiration, what a what a wonderful woman she, she was. Um, how... What was your next big inspiration to start in this field that you're in now? Well, and my dad. Did you count my dad being a, a phenomenal? You know, my yes. Because I'm really a, my father was a clinical psychologist, um, and he went to the Menninger Foundation, um, just all, you know, passionate study of schizophrenia. I became a clinical psychologist, and when I went to Michigan get my PhD, I was taught by his students. <laughs> so oh, my wow. PhD was shaped by his students. And my PhD was actually on being at risk for Huntington's. How do you like that? I said, wow. well, I might as well just you know, throw myself into the fire and see if I survive. Uh, and then I, we even started the tissue bank when I was in Michigan. Then I moved to New York was at the new school for a few years, and I heard about this possibility of a congressional commission on Huntington's. And they asked me if I wanted to be the executive director. Who were the chairs? Marjorie Guthrie, you know, oh. Woody Guthrie's widow, and my dad. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. So off I went and moved to Washington to head up the commission. Wow. Totally glorious. And they made so many so wonderful recommendations. I actually, you know, stayed in Washington to help implement them. You know, most of these commissions never get realized, you know, where they have, you know, it's like recommending the moon. Let's go to the moon so nothing happens. <laughs> so we said, you know, you need to build a ladder to the moon. And, we, and really, everything, almost every single one was realized, except for national health yeah. insurance. <laughs> Yes, yeah. And then I came to so, New York um, in 1983. And now you're and now you're heading up the Hereditary Disease Foundation. Right. Um with research. Now you're funding research as well through HDF, right? But when I right? came to 19 in 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 1983, I mean we um we had workshops. That's what we did. We we said, let's just get people. And that's, again, my dad's fantastic invention. Because as a psychologist, he had group therapy for a lot of artists, uh, painters, architects, uh, writers. And we started doing that, you know, by, at the same time, you know, at the same time we really started the foundation. So even a lot of our board members are artists. Mm-hmm. And then we said, well, why don't we see if we can have scientists put the same kind of creativity into research as we do in the arts. So when the foundation was started in 1968, we started having workshops. We still do have workshops, and they're fantastic, and they're 
you know, very um, refurbished slides. They're informal. They're, you know, days long. Uh, and we always invite some kind to talk. And then we, in October of 1979, we had a workshop in uh, Washington on whether or not you can actually use these sort of newly discovered uh, blips in our DNA, you know, patterns or markers in our DNA that could be used uh, as a roadmap to find Huntington's disease gene. And nobody was even talking about that. You know, 1979, like most people weren't even born. <laughs> and we said, well, you know, and people said it could take uh, 100 years, 10 or 15 or never or 100. So I said, well, if it's going to take that long, let's start. So that's when we actually funded David Hausman, looking, you know, to actually look at it, go for the markers. Uh, and I went down to Venezuela because when you're a gene hunter, you have to look for a marker in a gigantic family. So in July right. 1979, I went down to Venezuela for the very first time, both the same time uh, that we we had the workshop and I went to Venezuela, so both in 1979. And how did we know about Venezuela? Was there previous uh, information regarding Huntington's there, or how did you well, know one about of the, uh, one of the uh, workshops on our commission was on Venezuela, because mm-hmm. we were looking really, again, for big families, you know, to find the gene, but also in this, we were looking for somebody who would have a double dose of the gene who said, if you have a double dose of the gene, you know, you don't have any normal protein to cover it up. So if we can, you know, look for someone with this double dose and um, <clears throat> and study them, you know, maybe we can, that would be uh, an answer to the mystery. Yeah, and we didn't even know if you could live like that. No. Well, so that's what but is then, a double dose. What is sorry? a double dose? I've, double I've not dose heard is of somebody that. who has uh, inherited the Huntington's disease gene for both parents. Okay. So okay, your mom has sense. Huntington's, I mean, and your dad uh, has Huntington's. So mm. you'd have no normal protein. Right. Or, or, or clear. But, you know, you know, I mean, you know how rare Huntington's is, right? Mm-hmm. It's, like, extremely rare, you know, one in a hundred, one in ten, or whatever. And so we were looking for people that would inherit it from both sides of the family. So that is extremely, extremely rare. Wow. And the only place that we thought on the planet that might possibly have people uh, who had inherited from both sides and lived, you know, could be Venezuela, because they were having, you know, just huge, huge, huge families, and they were intermarrying. So off I went (laughs) to Venezuela. Well, I would imagine that they have a a lot of people that are sick there then. I mean, what is the rate in Venezuela for Huntington's? Well, it's probably, yeah, it's probably like, it could be, you know, 1 to 20. I mean, the family tree mm-hmm. we've developed is like over 18,000 people. Mm-hmm. And 
the very first woman uh, who lived like ten generations ago was very perfectly named Maria Concepcion, something like that. Concepcion. Aww, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, and um, we don't exactly know whether you know where she got it from, from Europe or you know a brand new mistake in her DNA, but over her lifetime of the 18,000 people, you know, we built it like a family tree of 18,000 mm-hmm. people. Um, wow. 14,000 are living. Uh, then we were able to collect uh, tissue samples from like 4,000 people, uh, genotype 3,000 people. Um, now, you know, and even study that many people. So that and just trying to actually find people living uh, with both parents was, right. I mean, not really a needle in the haystack. But when I went well, down there... I would, hmm? I would imagine that the, the juvenile Huntington's uh, occurrence is higher as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. 10% mm. or more. Oh. There. Mm-hmm. But that's really, you know, why? Because... Finding this double dose, you can solve, you know, hopefully solve the mystery with such a unique event. You know, plus we were looking for great big families to find the martyr and the gene. So mm-hmm. in July of '79, I went down to Mark Cairo, uh, which is a huge, huge uh, city right on Lake Mark Cairo. Lake Mark Cairo is like. Uh, like Lake Erie or Lake Michigan, it's just gigantic. Mm-hmm. It gets very Huge, rough. Yeah. It's a gulf, a gulf. And we went down there, and I kept asking everybody, you know, do you have both parents living? How many kids do you have? And then finally, we just the day before we were supposed to leave, somebody said, you know, um, if you just go down to this little stilt village, my cousins live down there, and they're pretty mm-hmm. big, uh, and, you know, why don't you talk to them? So we hired, you know, a little uh, a jeep to get down to the yeah. Barranquitas, and then we hired what are called Chilanas, which is a little boat. And then we went down to La Veneta, you know, for the very first time. I thought, wow, you know. <laughs> Gosh. Totally mysterious place that I've ever been in my entire life, you know. Yeah. Uh, just bizarre. Bright colors, still village, pigs, fish, cormorants, and all of it. And lo and behold, you know, backing back and forth in this stunningly gorgeous um, uh, hammock was the most elegant, most gorgeous, handsome man with dark brown hair, you know. Yeah. Uh, and he clearly, you know, was starting Huntington's. And we said, where's your wife? And she was... I actually, you know, walking away, smoking. They both they all smoke like things. <laughs> and there she was, at the other hand, like, they're go- just gorgeous. They are so stunningly gorgeous. And we said, "Where are your kids?" And lo- oh, that one, that one, that. One. And lo and behold, they they had fourteen kids. Fourteen kids. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Fourteen kids. And then we said, "Wow!" And then we said, "Do you have any other ones like you?" And his cousin. Hold up another little chalana. And this person's actual name is Beautiful Angel. The Spanish for Beautiful Angel. And he has, blonde, you know, blue eyes, blonde hair, 
and his little daughter, his sister was gorgeous, gorgeous. And Ooh, that boy wow. had been really, yeah, sick from the mm-hmm. age of two. So we met him. He was already sick. And then mm-hmm. he uh, was uh, dying of a seizure when he was 11. Oh, my but uh, in his family, you know, nine, they had nine kids. And they, but, and they all had it as juvenile. And of that family, because his mistake in the little child's gene was so gigantic, we actually found found the gene and with a double dose family that also helped mm-hmm. us find the marker in the gene because so many of them um, had just take also gigantic mistakes. But you could tell, mm-hmm. you know, which ones uh were normal, you know, even where they have both parents, which ones mm-hmm. had a double dose because they actually can live and don't seem to be so different. And even which ones have a one or two chance of getting sick. And the bad thing about Huntington's, you know, if you have a one or two chance, since it's dominant, you know, it shows up right. kills you. And right. of those families, when they had a double dose, a hundred percent of their kids got sick. So you know, so sometimes ten out of ten so even in that little tiny family yeah. in this built village, of the fourteen uh, you know, Almost all have died, and their grandkids. Have yeah, died. I mean, definitely yeah. everybody in that family of the fourteen died of Huntington's, and their cousins died of Huntington's, and their grandkids died of Huntington's. So that's also a huge motivator to, of try to do something, and change their lives. So what what is it like there now? I mean, was it as dangerous back then to travel there, or? I know it's dangerous now to travel there. Well, it wasn't. No, it wasn't as dangerous. I mean, we we um, we were there uh, during coups. We were there being held up by armed guards. We we had uh, we and well, I mean, we <laughs> really we got accosted by armed guards, and they all said, "Get out of the car, our arms raised." <laughs> and so, you know, and then actually, wow. even one time. We almost, you know, um, were coming back from Lionel in a boat and almost died in a storm. So I would say, and then they said, well, you know, you must be finding the, the cure because God spared you. So we had, we did have lots of different adventures. But, you know, well, now I think yeah. it's even really more dangerous and there's no yeah. water or, I don't know, food or electricity. I mean, yeah. people are just suffering. Well, but that's why we really cl- we started this. Yeah, we started this. Yeah. Uh, the clinic down there, you know, because right away when we went in 1979, we said people are, we didn't want to be just like hit and run scientists and leave people right. abandoned. So 25 years ago, we um, persuaded the government to help out they helped us buy the worst bar in town called the Red Bull Bar. And oh, it's not prostitutes, dope, oh, you name it. They did it, yeah. shooting up gangsters. Oh, and uh, so, but then it was just like a hole in the ground. And for 10 years, you know, we had to persuade every single government to please, you know, finish it, open it. So it took 10 mm-hmm. years. 
And thank God, Ashley uh, Bargo de Young, who's a fantastic Venezuelan physician, she lobbied, and every time our group came down, we lobbied. And then finally, you know, I think in like even 19, uh, you know, in the 90s, they finally opened it. I think it was mm-hmm. like 90, and you know, 99. They op- they actually opened it. We have 65 people. Uh, we feed people, you know, because as you know, you know, people with Huntington's need 5,000 calories a day. Right. So we feed them seven times, you know, seven times a day. We give them every, you know, tetrabenazine for free. Thanks to you know, antibiotics, antiparasites, antifungal, mm-hmm. anti everything. Yeah. So you really, uh, all kind of medicines, people with HD need, uh, you know, because they and everything is free, you know. So we just we donated more than seventeen million dollars since we uh, started down there. Okay. Yeah. And we still are collecting for them because it's, it's just you know their situation is horrendous. And our rule is that in all of the staff of the nursing home, the Casa is our um, Huntington family members. Mm-hmm. So they have, you know, respect, they have jobs, they have education, training. Mm-hmm. You know, they really know how to take care of their relatives. Cause they're taking their own husband, brother, son, right. grandson, uh, grandparent are all, you know, living in the Casa Gar being cared for by their own family members. And so they have, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, cleanliness, uh, respect, dignity. I think, you know, dignity is such a terrible, you know, such an issue. Mm-hmm. So um, terrible for anybody with Huntington's anywhere. And right. people are, you know, you can't even get a diaper or a wheelchair down there. So right. it's a terrible, so it really just, they have they have a lot of exposure to the elements there too, right? They don't have yeah, exactly. proper housing and things like that, which is really needed for right. somebody who's sick. Yeah, it's just well, in fact, the kids were running, you know, there's so much garbage and barbed wire and dead fish. I mean, kids were running, yeah. you know, really wild because they had. This one little girl with juvenile Huntington's was just running. She had parasites and uh, bugs and was eating mm-hmm. dirt. You know, we were, we rescued her. And she was, you know, her, her family was abusing her because her family all had Huntington's and they didn't really understand how to take care of her. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that there's no toys there. You know? Yeah. They probably play with dead fish, yeah, exactly. Things like that, because they don't have toys. Oh my goodness! We, you know, we are so fortunate here in the U.S. Um, we don't realize that, you know, even though we are suffering with this disease, we have so much more available to us in the way of care and, you know, medicines and food, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, water, things like that. We just take it for granted. So. It's really interesting to hear about that. How how is the clinic doing now, and how much? What does it cost to run a clinic there on a monthly basis? And how can we help as a community, or how can uh, some of our colleagues and professionals help to um, 
keep this funded? Well, I mean, well, since we're paying, you know, the cost of, of everything, um, you know, it, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. But the tragedy right now is because just the situation in Venezuela is so violent and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the healthcare workers, the nurses who work with us, um, are uh, really they go every day. They take care of the families, but there's just there's ransoms, shooting, kidnapping. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, and I think, and I'm trying to say to them, don't do that because you shouldn't be jeopardizing mm-hmm. your your lives. You know, your lives right. are you know too valuable. So we and the families themselves, because there's no food, they haven't been able to stay there. So they're not living there. They're just coming as sort of day patients. Mm-hmm. So I and I I think so, it's you know too hazardous. Right. So they don't actually have somebody on uh, there staffing the well. They do. Home they have, at night. They have, or, oh. Right. They don't have people at night, but they have people during the day. Hmm. Because, so if you know, if, if there was an emergency, huh? if there was an emergency with yeah, a patient, then they have Yeah, then uh, they would stay. Uh-huh. That makes it a little more difficult when you can't, when you're not safe, when you can't feel safe right. to stay. And, uh, and is there any way that, you know, some sort of communication with the government or um, people well, that are protecting... The borders, or I mean, is there any way to collaborate or communicate with them? I mean, you know, I definitely I talk to Margot and I talk to the nurses. You know, we can talk to them on cell phones. And, you mm-hmm. know, there's email, but I think that it's it's just you know it's just very dangerous. And as long as they're mm-hmm. there, uh, I think this particular government is not has not been friendly. Um, so, and I, and I know that, you know, a lot of Venezuelans are suffering. But right. you know, the families in particular are suffering because they have absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I want to put up on the uh, chat room and the show page and uh, all of the, the network um, how to donate to Hereditary Disease Fund doing that, and I know you need you need funds for that. But what else are yeah. you funding as far as basic research and things like that? Well, I, you know, again, this is a way that the Venezuelans have helped enormously because we, you know, we have all of these you know tissues, twenty three years worth of you know clinical data, um, and we so if we. There are a thousand people who have expanded repeats just in the Venezuelans alone. Uh, we diagnosed 500 of them. So right mm-hmm. now we're looking for secrets in their DNA that can help push Huntington's out of the lifespan. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that people can get it from you know two to 92, and you know down in Venezuela they can get it from two to you know a little boy to probably mm-hmm. their 60s is the latest. But we're saying, well, how do the six-year-olds do it? So we actually have a grant from the W.M. Keck Foundation uh, of California to fund a, a project looking 
for modifiers that will push Huntington's out of the lifespan. So we're actually taking the DNA from the Venezuelans and doing mm-hmm. whole genome sequencing right in our New York uh, Genome Center in the heart of downtown New York. And that <laughs> genome center uh, has been terrific. Uh, it's um, one of the very few in the world that have this next-generation sequencing. And that means yeah. it goes extremely fast, costs $1,000, which is shocking. You know, that's gotten that cheap. Uh, <laughs> and we actually have uh, are analyzing 400 of the Venezuelans. We have 63 people sequenced. You know, wow. it's shocking because, you know, again, it's like people, you know, have mysteries hidden in their DNA that are leading to leads that, you know, we never really even could, could fathom, you know. Right. Now, are we talking about gene silencing or gene editing here? No, we're talking about looking at actually at their DNA for genes that were, will modify when okay. Huntington's shows up. So we're really we're looking specifically at the age of onset because we're saying, okay. uh, you know, we're, because of that, 100 people, uh, I'm sorry, 1,000 people who had uh, who, who had an expansion in their DNA, who you know would get who did get Huntington's and die. We're we're looking at at people who had both a very late onset and a very early onset. Mm-hmm. So we're saying the people, you know, I mean, if you look at just the, you know, maybe I should say something about repeat length because that probably yes. would make it easier. Okay? Would help, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So what we know is again from looking at the Venezuelans, after we've found the marker, yay us, the next <laughs> AG. We found the gene, yay team, because that was a gigantic mm-hmm. worldwide collaboration for a decade, of over 100 people for a decade. Right. So in 1993, we found the gene. Um, and we found that this gene, uh, that the mistake in the gene is that it makes a protein that is really made up of a bunch of amino acids called glutamine. Mm-hmm. So the, the glutamine is uh, actually makes up a protein that uh, it's like it, this particular protein uh, is just sort of too many glutamines in a row. Mm-hmm. And that uh, protein, so a certain number of glutamines in a row is normal, like say up to 35 if you have between 35 and 40 glutamines in a row, you know, you may or may not get sick. If you have more than 40 glutamines in a row in your HD gene, the disease absolutely shows up if you live a normal lifespan. It shows up, knocks your socks off, and kills you okay. with 100% certainty. If you have more than uh, 60 repeats in a row, CAGs, you'll get sick 20 or younger. So that's really why kids get sick as, young, as kids, uh, if they have too many of these glutamines. Right. Uh, but then we said, well, is there more to life than just the glutamines? 
you know, maybe there are other genes that are not just, you know, we know our gene is on the top of chromosome 4, but maybe there are genes on other chromosomes that can impact when you get sick. Uh-huh. So we started looking, the same way we found the Huntington gene. We looked, became gene hunters for gene modifiers. You know, other genes on other chromosomes that really can push, that can impact when Huntington starts. Mm-hmm. And we found that some people uh, get sick uh, 20 years before they should, based on their repeat length. Mm-hmm. Some people get sick 20 years later. Right. They should. So we said, hey, what are those guys doing? Both of them. I know. You know we people know that are doing. You know, getting sick yeah. super late, and people that are getting sick very young. And can we learn from them? And that's how we actually started doing this whole genome sequencing. Because we said on their, in their, uh, their chromosomes and their DNA, there are clues to other genes that can influence the age of onset and push it out of the lifespan. And we started with the Venezuelans because, you know, we know so much about them. We have their DNA. You know, we already were looking at them. Mm-hmm. And how is that going? Fantastic. <laughs> that oh, was wow. very exciting, yeah. Yep. So well, we're finding out what the modifiers clues. are. Yep. Through all, and you know, the sequencing. And do we I have think, anything published on that yet, or is it still? No, because it's still too new. We're still, yeah. You know, it's like a discovery a day. <laughs> oh, goodness, how exciting, though. Yeah, it is. It's and it, and again, closer. you know, it's another way that the Venezuelans help because, you know, <laughs> with, with everything all ready to go, you know, they just said, okay, let's let's do that. So that's very so exciting. Of, and so all of the the tissues that have been collected are now in a bank for other researchers. And how does how does that work? Well, that works fine, you know. And I think that there, I mean, the Coriel uh, has a lot of the cells, uh, uh, and we also, I mean, you know, different investigators are also have cells. Uh, Jean-Paul wants to tell, we, you know, we had 80 autopsies, and so Jean-Paul has all Venezuelan yeah. brain tissue. We have mm-hmm. 500 fibroblasts that people want to look at, you know, silent tissue for, you know, there are all kinds of ways that people can actually, you know, look at uh, all these, these tissues together. That's exciting. We're very, yeah, the thing that, the fact that, you know, the techniques are so much better and faster, although, you know, if you're sequencing, if you have 400 people, that's $400,000, so that's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's still cheaper. What? It's still a lot. (laughs) So, um, one of the questions that I I wanted to ask you was, you know, there's a lot of stigma still surrounding Huntington's, and you know, when when you were younger, it was um, only males could get Huntington's. So, how do we dispel some of those stigmas, and and can we do it through science? Well, I'm going to give you um, I'm going to give you a guarded answer. Okay, 
some of my uh, very best friends um, have positions uh, of a lot of responsibility, making uh, judgments, making financial mm-hmm. judgments, uh, doing you know physically risky things, and I have a feeling if their employers knew that they would have you know stand a good chance of getting fired. I think oh. these days uh, it's very hard in uh, you know kind of ticklish economy to um, you know to prove. I mean, with the the uh, Genetic Information Act, it doesn't protect you. You have to really prove it. You have to go to court and prove that someone is firing you because mm-hmm. of your DNA and your genetic test. Right. So. To say to your, you know, to say to the people you know, why don't you lie about it and keep it hidden, increases the stigma. But right. how do people, you know, uh, come out and be advocates when mm-hmm. it's going to, you know, sort of imperil their lives or their safety? I think, um, I think people should be paying for, you know, a prenatal genetic diagnosis right now. Mm-hmm. Just you know, people get you know, bankrupt paying for it, but it's mm-hmm. the one way you can actually get a genetic diagnosis if you want it uh, before pregnancy is established. You know, it's entirely in vitro. You just in the lab, you pluck out one cell of a, of a uh, egg, um, right. and you know, analyze the the DNA of that embryo, and the embryos that are fine, you know, you put in the embryos that are not fine, we use for research, if you're lucky. But I think that, uh, so I, I think people, that the, our insurance company should pay for that. I think that people, um, and maybe then the people would have to face having the company, or the insurance company, know why, you know, which again, I think is an intrusion on their privacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could do it for all kinds of reasons. Uh, so I, I we're paying you for therapies. You know, therapies are very expensive. If you actually, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about gene silencing. You asked about that before. So okay. to me, I think gene silencing is fantastic. You know, I think it's like the most exciting thing going. There's a brand new trial of a gene silencing using something called an ASO which is an mm-hmm. oligonucleotide silencer. Basically, mm-hmm. it's like a jato, uh, you know, a judo kick to your DNA. So your DNA thinks it's making you sick. Your, your DNA says, here, I'm making the protein, but it has to get translated into something called an RNA. And this um, oligo is like a vice grip, which clamps on to that message knocks its socks off, so the mm. toxic protein's never made. Mm-hmm. So that is, you know, can be a cure, but yeah. that's going to be very expensive. So how do we get uh, insurance companies to pay for these things? How do we? Right. And there are a lot, you know, other kinds of gene silencing. <laughs> Beverly Davidson at, uh, at Chop at Penn was working on a new way of gene silencing. You know, and that also involves using a virus and that, you know, the gene silencing can go into your right. brain. So you have to actually get it to 
100,000 neurons. You know, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how do you uh, make sure that once these kinds of therapies are developed, that the insurers are going to pay for it? And they're not going to you know, bankrupt families that don't have any money to begin with. Right. So that's that's what I was just going to say that. A lot of our HD families are financially, you know, not set up for that kind of expense. And now here's another question that I, we've had a lot of community members over the years um, contact us and and tell us that they're having problems getting tested because they don't have Korea. What? And, yeah, we've heard that on a number of occasions from community members. And I was just wondering if you had heard of that and what would you suggest for someone who is having that issue? And who are they having the issue with? With the clinic. Who are they trying to get tested from? Huntington. I mean, like a neurologist or a geneticist or? Different clinics across the country. Uh, Some are um, uh, centers of excellence. Some are private, you know, clinics. And I think there must be some sort of a, a genetic testing protocol that's been published. Um, and maybe that has some has something to do with it. Uh, they're also required to go through extensive genetic counseling, and you know these are very expensive endeavors for someone who is already financially, you know, strapped. So. Um, well, I think that Korea, you know, you know, as you know, because you have kids with juvenile Huntington's, you know, Korea is not a symptom of juvenile. Right. So, if they're you know, younger or people that are, you know, even young adults who have kind of a juvenile rigid form, they're not going to have Korea. So if they think somebody, you know, has like a family history or or risk of Huntington's, you know, I mean, first of all, it's their person's prerogative to get tested no matter what, you know, for the Mm -hmm. physician or the geneticist to say, well, no, you don't have the right symptom. You know, that's not up to them. Uh, And I think in terms of the testing and the counseling, you know, I think having counseling helps because I think very often our people will, you know, will decide not to get tested um, or, you know, if they, I think people often have sort of unrealistic ideas about what they would do with that test information. And especially mm-hmm. at the moment, there's not huge numbers uh, you know, treatments that we can do. There's not, I mean, there are symptomatic therapies you can do that help. But some of those, you know, therapies, you don't have to get tested. You know, if you're depressed, take an antidepressant, you know, um, mm-hmm. exercise. I mean, there are a lot of different things people can do without getting a diagnosis of Huntington's and learning you're going to die. On the other hand, you know, I so I personally, I think some of the prenatal guidelines were misinterpreted because I think they said they thought somebody at risk had to get tested themselves before they got pregnant. And, of course, everybody gets pregnant. And, you know, if you get pregnant and say, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, now at <laughs> risk, I think I'd like to find out. And so yeah. the timing is wrong. And right. when somebody's, you know, a friend of mine has happened, you know, so then they forced him to go get tested, and everything was terrible. You know, mm-hmm. but the, but his wife was already pregnant, so it just exacerbated something that should not have been so pain, drawn on and painful 
because if they wanted pre, there are ways you can even do. I mean, if you're using IVF and PGD, you can mm-hmm. do it as a uh, non-disclosing. You can say, I don't want to know my own genotype. Just you know, mm-hmm. screen the eggs and put in ones that are healthy. And again, that's very expensive. You have to really get right. people, you know, to be able to either pay themselves or get the insurance to pay. But I think forcing people themselves to get tested to find out if they're going to have Huntington's, that's not fair, you know, before they get pregnant. Plus, mm-hmm. That's just you know, exacerbates bad news. But I think that was sort of a misinterpretation of the guidelines. But I think that the guidelines, you know, shouldn't be onerous. I think they should were, you know, really trying to help people because it's a monumental decision. I think people should... They're going to get tested. They should make sure they have uh, the test run two different clinics or two different times, two different samples, because you can make a mistake. You know, oh, that's true. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. That's a thought. Yeah. Um, what is, What is your thought and what is your um, opinion and how do you stand on uh, working with the juvenile Huntington's? Um, individuals and, and testing and studying and that kind of thing? Well, uh, how do you mean working with them? Well, I, I think, you know, in the U.S., um, there's the study at University of Iowa, which I think is invaluable. Uh, Dr. General is working on a JHD research initiative uh, with Kyle Fink in their lab. And um, I know with your work in Venezuela, I'm sure you're, you've been able to um, work with some of that tissue as well. But what is your stance on it as far as um, doing clinical trials and, and testing of juveniles and that kind of thing? Well, I think it's very, you have to be very careful about what kind of informed consent you want to give uh, to children and their parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have, uh, I mean, when we test people in in Venezuela, it's you know entirely blind, and people are analyzed by code. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when somebody's dying in your arms, you know that they have Huntington's. It's not a mystery. Right. You know their mm-hmm. kids are at risk, but we never know. You know that person uh, hasn't expanded, repeat, and they're going to die. You can't first of all. Um, there isn't any way you can function, you know. I, I think it's really sort of um, immoral. And um, I, for example, I think some of the predict, uh, you know, examinations that are done when the person examining them knows their genotype, there's no way they can be blind. You just can't mm-hmm. do it. You know? Right, right. You yeah, do it. So you have to make sure somebody's blind, you know, uh, really is blind to their genotype if they're doing any kind of exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with juvenile kids who have juvenile or risk for juvenile, I think it really again could be very catastrophic because they, what mm-hmm. do they know? They look at their parents, they look at their brothers and sisters, and they say, right. you know, that's me. And when we started out in Venezuela. You know, we ask people, well, would you want to know, you know, if, if you're going to get Huntington's? And they said, no, I'd go shoot myself. 
<laughs> not oh, yeah. say, here's the pill or here's the treatment. You know, you can't do it. So I think with mm-hmm. kids especially, you need to be very, very careful. If you're saying, well, you know, I want you to participate, especially if you're screening their brain, you know, how do you do informed consent? I want you to do a study because you might actually be dying at the moment, even though you're eight. That's not fair. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that's, I think personally, that's a little unethical. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, scientifically, there isn't a reason that we ought to be doing that. You can't say, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, if you look at your brain with a scan, we can give you a different treatment. Once we have mm-hmm. a treatment, you know, that would be different. But right now, there's no, nothing really to justify. There's so many different thoughts to that, right? I mean, everybody has opinions about that. I think it's really important that we do try to find a cure for HD and JHD. And why but is it how do we? Ch- I think it's going to be the same cure. Yeah, I, do you think so? Definitely. Okay. You know, this protein just gets clumped into a, a, just a, a ball of sticky glue, sticky, sticky. Yeah. You know, you know with your kids, you know. If you have just the most massive, massive um, glue mess, you know, and you're, it's just like, it's a complete uh, glue mess. So mm-hmm. that's what the protein does. When it gets too big, it just turns into a sticky glue mass mm-hmm. and gums up your your neurons. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, until the neurons started coughing, coughing, trying to cough it up, coughing up, you know, yeah, the neurons yeah. like, ah, I'm out of here. Like, like so, <laughs> You know, if uh-huh. you're, but it's the same stuff. It's the same Huntington protein. Why um, do you think the symptoms are so different? Well, again, I think with kids, they don't have that much reserve. They don't have that many, you know, because it really starts so young. Mm-hmm. So you don't have that many brain cells. And it really is that glue and that gunk is going into everything and poisoning everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why we're sort of trying to look for a yeah. vacuum cleaner, you know. We're right. really great. I mean, it's like one of the grants we're funding, a woman named Ayamamoto. You know, she's trying to find something that will de-litter the brain, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she can vacuum clean those clumps, you know, mm-hmm. that's a way that you can start curing the brain. And once, the, you know, the brain seems to be so plastic, you know, once it coughs up those clumps, it can have even a capacity to heal itself. Is that an inflammatory clump. response? Is that an well, inflammatory response? Some of it may, also, some of it may mm-hmm. also be an inflammatory response to being attacked by those clumps. Mm-hmm. But it's basically, you know, it's just in the entirely the same clumps. Mm-hmm. When you have a huge, it's sort of like, you, you know, the Cyrano de Bergerac, you know, the playwright? Where yes. His nose got too long. <laughs> or Pinocchio. <laughs> That's what happens in your brain. It turns into Pinocchio, you know. Yeah. And, and it bends Aww. over and it just becomes just these giant, gigantic clumps. And so I think, actually, that's sort of why people think, well, you know, this, those same sticky, toxic clumps 
or with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and you know, Luke Eric's. Yeah. But we yeah. I think we we can all learn from each other because we're all trying to do garbage pail cleaning on those same same sticky clumps. Yeah. So things that work you know, for us, you know, we try on them and vice versa. So so what you've discovered about H D you've been able to translate over to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and ALS. Oh, that's fantastic. I just want to tell you 100%. So let me tell you another thing that we learned in Venezuela. So that little little boy, you know, who got sick at two, Mm -hmm. he had 100 um, CAGs in his protein. So Mm -hmm. he had 100 things making him sick. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, his, and that's why he got sick so early, because he just, right. in his brain, we looked at his brain, we looked at his body, it just really, it, but it's 100% that same, that same clumps. His dad got sick when he was 40, mm-hmm. and he had half the number of clumps. And yeah. half the number, but, you know, so, and that's the difference. So we're looking mm-hmm. at his dad, we're looking at his whole family. And the brain. if we can, that's why, but it's 100% the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's made sick, whether it's a child or an adult. It's 100% mm-hmm. that same sticky, you know, um, sticky stuff, chewing yeah. gum. It's just like failed wow. chewing gum. And I think with a child, it like starts so young. And so early, that and the kid is, you know, so immature still that they don't have, you know, they can't get rid of They don't have a vacuum cleaner yet. Yeah, they don't have the reserve, like you said, to fight it. And they also, that particular, having so many, uh, that, you know, having so many of those bad things in a row, you know, that totally makes you sick earlier. Mm-hmm. more severely, but it's the same exact gunk, the same stuff. It's not any different. So, so the silent so thing should work for both of them. Mm-hmm. Both, yeah. So what have you learned uh, with the research, especially with the research in Venezuela, about the rate of uh, the CAG expanding, I forget what that's called, um, anticipation. Have you learned in any rule of thumb or variations of how the um, anticipation happens? Sure. That's how we figured it out was actually down there. <laughs> because, okay. when, you know, when we found the gene in 1993, we said, how come these kids are getting sick so young? But also, you know, kids are almost invariably from, you know, getting it from their dads. Like a little two-year-old, he got it from his dad. Right. So we said, um, how do we actually test the next generation? Mm-hmm. So uh, and so we said to the guys, can you help us out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We tried to do this experiment in the United States. You know, we got one volunteer. Oh. And once we basically, we explained to the guys, you know, but these guys really, they, they are very, um, they're, they want to help with their their family, their kids. So once we 
explain to the guys that couldn't they go up to us, you know, uh, bought magazines. <laughs> we we uh, we made it comfortable for them, and we said, you know, we need. I I I said, I'm a woman. You know, I would like to help, but I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we asked the guys, would they be willing to donate a sperm sample? Mm-hmm. Uh, and to actually, you know, help us answer this question. Because we said, mm-hmm. you know, we know it's being passed from parent to kids, so can you help us figuring out, figuring this out? So they said, sure. So we, you know, we actually got 1,700 sperm samples. I got guess. Wow. <laughs> wow, they were happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> they were happy to help. <laughs> now, having to explain it, we know, only we had one in the U.S. Like Spanish word. <laughs> we, we couldn't figure out what to even call it. You know what? What? Oh, what? Goodness. What? You know, because it, it was you know different slang and different language. But but here's what we discovered. You know, we also could you know study since we were looking um, at some women you know postmortem. That for the women, and you can look at their kids. Women will expand, uh, just like a few repeats uh, up and down, but the women even contract. So the women, from oh, their kids, right, they can oh. get maybe up one or three, or and sometimes down three. Mm. Uh, for the men, they're just like these are our, our guys. You know, the guys that we love and know. And so every man is different, and every mm-hmm. sperm is actually different yeah. because yeah. we analyze every single sperm, and each sperm has their own repeat length. So mm-hmm. the, the sperm, the length of the man's own DNA, would be the, the smallest. But mm-hmm. say one father, uh, he he his own DNA was uh, was forty four, just kind of middle, but his sperm. We're all the way up to 179. Yeah. Oh my I, gosh! <laughs> you know, we don't even know. If, if oh that my gosh! But then he he unfortunately had many children who had juvenile Huntington's. Of course. So yeah. it's just you know how uh, many uh, the the luck or unluck of that particular conception of the draw, you know. But then every single. Uh, sperm, if they expand and get larger and larger, um, you know, that's how they are actually producing. But a woman who ended up, she got sick at 14, and her uh, repeat was like 74. Her child got sick at at 6 and uh, got, you know, the same repeat length. You know, seventy six. Oh, wow. So sometimes, you know, if, if you if the mom is starting out with with juvenile, you know, that's kind of all she has in her body to pass on is juvenile. Mm-hmm. And what influence, rare. if any, do you know um, if if there is any um, influence of, of comorbid conditions like diabetes or other types of um, illnesses like that? What what um, what role does that have on um, the Huntington's 
Well, I think that all of those things affect people's health, especially, you know, diabetes. You know, it makes Mm -hmm. a big difference. I think at one point we were trying to see if Huntington's could predispose or protect you from diabetes because, you know, how you would um, handle your sugar. Like one of the Mm -hmm. questions we're looking at right now is, is there an impact on Huntington's and and cancer? You know, again, Mm -hmm. this is... Uh, protect you or make you more vulnerable. We're, we're right in the middle of doing a study uh, in England because England, mm. you know, has all of these different health records. So we're yes. looking at whether or not, you know, whether somebody with Huntington's is more or less likely to get, hun- you know, cancer because mm-hmm. they're, again, there are sort of genes that we have that can protect against cancer will predispose to cancer. And if those genes are activated or not activated by Huntington's or influenced by Huntington's, it could potentially um, impact having it or being protected. Mm-hmm. I mean, like there's you know, a suicide gene. So in that suicide gene, mm-hmm. but, you know, it could also maybe involve uh, with Huntington's or not. I mean, Huntington's is amazing that it has all of these sort of interacting par- partners. Huntington's is a very good dance partner because she likes mm-hmm. to hang out, dance all night. Yep. Unfortunately. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Now, another question that, that, that I've, I I've had in I think one of the things that we want to really emphasize, though, if you could get treatments for these other conditions... Right. You know, that helps just people being healthy in general. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we found out uh, is that exercise actually helps grow new nerve cells in your brain. So mm-hmm. we learned it from rats and true people. The more you mm-hmm. can exercise and keep you know, healthy, but ac- really exercise, walking, running, that ac- can stimulate new brain cell- nerve cells in your brain. And diet might have a, a role. Diet, totally. In it. Especially, yeah. you know, if you have to plug down 5,000 calories a day, that's right. quite, a, quite a tall order. Does a high consumption of sugar have any role in there as well? Well, you know, I'm not positive. I think people will say, you know, should you avoid it or not, chocolate, should you avoid it or not. I think that things that are good, people, I think that, if people like eating and it's enjoyable and part of their pleasure, you know, then you really should maximize it. I mean, trying to get 5,000 calories to avoid sugar chocolate, I don't even know how you can live. <laughs> Is that even possible? <laughs> oh, you know my diet. <laughs> We can talk all day, and I have more and more, more and more questions for you. But we're get, we're running out of time, and I want you to talk about um, your uh, Hereditary Disease Foundation event. So you have one in August, your symposium, and that's a um, by invitation only. And then you have another one in November, your celebration of of discovery. And so I want you to tell us about that real quick. Well, in August we have. Uh, 300 people coming from all over the world, um, and it, it's it's that you know 
my, well, my dad said, let's really get everybody together, like, you know, maximum, maximize their creativity, uh, let them interact, let, you know, you, we have young people, you know, graduate students, senior yeah. people, you know, we have just a fantastic uh, mixture of all kinds of people, all kinds of uh, expertise, and people invariably, they write back and say, wow. You know, my mind was blown by that meeting because, you know, I <laughs> met people. I, you know, I have 50 new collaborations coming out of that meeting. That's wonderful. You know, and it really is fantastic. And I think, you know, we're so lucky because I think the Huntington's research can be, of course, I'm biased, but, you know, we're the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people I love each so other. Too. You know, <laughs> they're very loving and warm and collaborative. You never say, you know, Oh, I can't tell you. You say, oh, well, my lawyer told me not to tell you, but this is what I found today. <laughs> you know? And it makes all the difference in the world. Well, and, and you I can do that, that in a professional setting. <laughs> right. Right. And then the meeting that we're having, you know, the celebration we're having in November, we're also proceeding by a workshop. You know, again, okay. you know, so that we can increase the discovery. Our whole yes. science board is invited uh, to our the benefit, we have phenomenal Howard McGillan of the great opera, you know, fame of Phantom of the Opera. He's singing. Yep. Uh, oh, and, yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, and we want so, you to do that more. <laughs> yeah, Get all these wonderful minds together. <laughs> and I, I think sure. they love it. You know, they love mm-hmm. it. They really because I think so, that. So what I'm doing is I'm posting your contact information, um, your uh, email information for donating to uh, HD Foundation, and um, I would encourage. Yes, Hereditary Disease Foundation, and I would encourage everyone to visit your website because your website. it's a, a remodeled website from oh, a uh, few years ago, and it's it's <laughs> really cool. nice. I like the way it's organized. Thank and, you. Um, Please donate and support the Venezuela Huntington's Disease Project. Support all that uh, Hereditary Disease Foundation is doing. And Nancy, this has just been the biggest show ever for me. <laughs> and well, I so appreciate you. Right back at you. Um, no, thank you. I love you. Um, so I love you too. Everybody loves Nancy Wexler for sure. Um, we have a few. Uh, announcements, upcoming shows and events. I just want to let everybody know. Tomorrow is our first JHD show with Dr. Kyle Pink and Dr. Peg Napolis. And and this show will be hosted by our very own JHD mom, Denise Hudgel. She's also one of our board members. Um, Then the Dr. Goodman show will be on uh, June 8th. And then we'll be attending the Florida Police Chiefs Chiefs Association conference again. That will be... um, I think in July, and then um, we have an HD Awareness Day here on the Central Coast in Lompoc on the uh, September 19th. I think there's another event called Amethyst Cards for the Cure. Uh, tune in later, and we'll we'll give you more information about that. Nancy, again, you are just a sweetheart, a dear person, and we love well, you. And kisses to all of you because I know <laughs> I know what it's like to have people die in your arms, and the only way you can answer that pain is to get up and keep walking and say, I'm going to walk towards the cure no matter how long it takes or how hard it takes, because that's right. the only way we can do it, and we have to do it together. Amen. Yeah. I would also like oh, to thank everybody. Yes. 
and keep going. Don't stop. Yeah. <laughs> Never give up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And um, I would also like to thank everyone uh, in our HD community and JHD community for um, the, their tremendous efforts. The amount of advocacy and awareness projects and all the proclamations that are happening right now, it's very inspiring. And um, that's happening this month. May um, is Huntington's and Juvenile Huntington's Awareness Month. And I uh, just want to say thank you, everyone. You're awesome. We'll conclude the show. Boo-hoo. <laughs> uh, again, Dr. Wexler, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And you are just such Pleasure an inspiration to all of us. In in HD community, the JHD community, the scientific community, it's just amazing. And wishing you and the Hereditary Disease Foundation many, many more years of amazing wow. science breakthrough. Thank you. Thank you. We're about to have our almost 50th anniversary. Can you believe that? <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. And so, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Uh, please send this show link out to your colleagues, family, and friends. And don't forget, our first JHD show is tomorrow at 1 o'clock. PST, 4 o'clock EST. Have a great week, everybody. Nancy, love you. you Alice, you thank you love for right joining back. us. Okay, you. take care, Thanks. everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs> Good night.